The Start On Demand. On Demand. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Winnipeg today. Many of you want to hear what he has to say about the carbon tax. In the meantime, we want you to hear what a law professor has to say about a major court challenge that's set to begin between Saskatchewan and Ottawa on said carbon tax. The M word. That's what we call it on the start. It's been removed from the vocabulary of football Manitoba and basketball Manitoba. Could Hockey Manitoba be next? The little people of Manitoba weigh in on this groundbreaking move by these organizations. And we'll get a preview of the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra's Star Wars vs. Star Trek, hosted by the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, February 12th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb on this CFL Free Agency Day. Free Agency starts at 11. Make sure you tune in for our three-hour Santa Lucia Pizza CFL Experts panel live on Facebook from 11 until 2. Hosted by Christian O'Mell. Experts like Bob Irving and Doug Brown join host Christian O'Mell from the CGOB Sports Show to break down the signings and what they mean for the Bombers. Doug Brown's going to be there. Greg Mackling's going to be there. And Santa Lucia Pizza is going to be there. Like actual pizza? I yes. Believe that's so. the key. How that's... do we find our way back into this room in we a couple can't. hours, Brett? There's a lock on the door. <laughs> Once 11 o'clock comes around, I don't know how I'm going to get back in here, but I'm determined. We'll have to fa- fashion a battering ram, I think. <laughs> fashion. <laughs> Reminds Peter. me of that, that Friends episode uh, when, when Joey needs something certain fashioned. Yeah, that actually would be, make for a great part of the stream, right? Does it just see Loren and I just come barreling <laughs> through the door? You guys might get contracts. We can wait for a good signing, like to, for a dramatics. Yeah. Well, what think- we're really here for is a nice pep mush. Is that? on the <laughs> uh, in case you missed it the blue bombers did side brandon alexander last night joe van santos knox seems to have uh, told the blue bombers he will explore other options and uh, the big story outside of winnipeg is where will mike riley land the big Rumor has him going back to Vancouver where he began his CFL career. So, Prime Minister is going to be in Winnipeg today. Yeah, here for a funding announcement on transit, but that's, of course, not the only thing he's going to be asked about. As we were telling you in the last half hour, there are allegations. He or his office tried to pressure the former Attorney General to ask prosecutors to cut a deal with a Quebec engineering firm so that business could then avoid a criminal trial. And then, of course, there is this court challenge over the carbon tax. Starting in April, the federal government will be imposing a carbon levy on provinces that do not have their own carbon tax plan. Its price on pollution starts at $20 per ton. Manitoba and Saskatchewan, amongst others, are opposed to the idea. And tomorrow, the Saskatchewan government will be in an appeals court asking for ruling on whether or not this federally imposed tax is constitutional. And Karen Busby is a law professor with the University of Manitoba and joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Karen, good morning to you. Good morning to you. So some experts are calling this monumental in terms of the constitutional fight that's up. Why would that term be used? Kind of break it down for us if you can. 
Well, there's a couple of ways in which it's monumental. First of all, um, there are a huge number of parties. There's something like 15 interveners in the case, so many people have an interest in the case, so that's number one. Number two, there's a real confusion around who has jurisdiction over environmental issues, the federal government or the provincial government. So this case will give us some clarity on the issue of who has that jurisdiction and if it's split jurisdiction, who exactly can do what. And thirdly, it's a real challenge. Um, you know, the federal government has introduced a program that it thinks is key to its platform, and um, you know we'll see how how it holds up in court. Professor Busby, you, can I circle back to something you said first? There are fifteen interveners; uh, they're on side with Saskatchewan. Can you clarify that a little bit for us? Some are on side with Saskatchewan and some are on side with the federal government. So, um, you know, there's some uh, Aboriginal organizations that are, have intervened. There's some other provinces that have intervened. There's a lot of industry that's intervened. On balance, I suspect that most are on side with the province, but there's some that are on side with the federal government. Is there any precedent for this? Have we been here before when it comes to a challenge of this size saying, look, we don't think you have the right to come into our province and tell us how to do things in this manner? Actually, it happens all the time. So it's not an unusual thing to happen. I teach federalism, which is relations between the federal, who has the power to do things, federal government or provincial government. And there are one or two major disputes a year on who has the power to do uh, something. So, um, you know, it's not, uh, it happens with some regularity. So perhaps the better question is then when this does happen, who who usually comes out ahead, the federal government or the, the provincial government? It depends really on the issue. Um, but the federal government has some... Um, super tools in its pocket, if you will. So, for example, uh, the environment is considered to be a split jurisdiction. The federal government has jurisdiction and the provinces have jurisdiction. The the problem here is um, the federal government has to establish, their best argument is to establish that provinces have not or cannot effectively deal with the problem of greenhouse gas emissions. And if the feds can establish that, that the provinces have not or cannot effectively deal with the problem, then the federal government gets jurisdiction. So that's one, one that's the main argument I think the federal government will be making. The other argument that it can make is if the federal government and provincial governments both pass laws in areas where they have jurisdiction and they clash with each other, the federal government holds the trump card, something called the paramountcy doctrine. So the federal law prevails over provincial law in the event of a conflict between the two laws. So what are the likelihood that this is going to be settled in this first uh, court? Oh, not at all. It won't won't be settled at all. So what happens is if a province wants to challenge federal legislation, it can file a reference, that's the technical term, in its own provincial uh, court of appeal. And then uh, the federal government can go directly to the Supreme Court of Canada with a reference. And just about always on significant references, it then is appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. So this battle is just starting. It's not nearly over. How long could it take? Um, It really was... Generally speaking, uh, the case will be argued this week. We can, generally speaking, expect a decision from the Court of Appeal in about six months. Then it would be another year before it would be heard in the Supreme Court of Canada, a year to 18 months, and then another six months after that. So the matter going through the courts, we're looking at at least two years, probably three, um, before we would get a final decision from the Supreme Court of Canada. Karen Busby is a law professor with the University of Manitoba. Joined us live on 680 CJOB. Karen, thank you very much. My pleasure. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us. Jeff Braun is here. Cameron Poitras is here. Jeff Forte is here. The question of the day yesterday morning, which is brought to you, by the way, by Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness at 204 
832-6243. By the way, if you can hear, there's like static coming out of our main speaker. So if you hear a weird kind of hissing noise. It's not your radio. Yeah. It's not static coming out of the radio. There's static coming out of our speaker in here. So It's the wind. Let's just pretend it's the wind because it's snowing again and cold. So Yeah. I, I can't like even that. hear it. You what can't? You no. Oh, I feel like that's all I hear right now. What? What are you saying, Jeff? Yeah. Oh, it's no, still that doesn't there. even fix yeah. it. We're, we're trying to troubleshoot it live on the air. So the question of the day results yesterday regarding the liquor mart thefts. We had four choices. And 38% of you said install. The question was, what could the liquor mart do to curb thefts? Install a security door that locks so thieves can't get out, like at a jewelry store. 38% went with that. 27% said make it so you have to place your order at a counter, like some beer vendors. 18% said hire police officers to patrol the stores, as they did last weekend for a pilot project and that's what triggered this whole conversation. And 17% said, have someone scan your ID as you walk in. Uh, Similar results on Twitter as well. 29% say scan IDs as people enter. 29% say security doors. 27% say no shelves, just a counter. And 15% say have cops in stores. So it seems like the the least popular option is to have cops in stores. So we figured we would rather the troops, as we decided upon yesterday, (laughs) rather the troops and have, have a chat. So Cam Poitras... What say you in terms of curbing the theft? Well, I'm looking at install a security door to lock out thieves. I mean, would that just leave, get them stuck in the store? And that could, might cause a lot of problems in itself. You That's know what, what I we mean? Were, like if, you, if you, you'd have the thief stuck in between, which is one thing, but then everybody inside yeah. would have to They'd, wait. They'd be in the vestibule. Is that what it's called? Vestibule. V- vestibule. Would it lock I don't them? know what it's called. Did you say vestibule? Yeah, I don't know. I said something. I don't know what I said. It's vestibule. <laughs> but yeah, you have there. a backlog of all these people in the vestibule. Yeah, I mean, would you, 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 would you lock them in that little area or would they be kind of you know, like it would be kind of like a fight or kind of like a fight situation for a lot of these people because it's if they're going to get caught, you know what I mean? Is that just going to cause more problems and more security issues? Um, I don't know. Well, you'd have to have a secondary exit yeah. for when you trap somebody in there with something that they w- weren't supposed to have. Yeah. And the so fire that, department would demand that, I'm sure. Oh, without question. Yeah. And so would your customers right. because just because there's a thief trapped in the fishbowl that would be the... Have we decided on the festibule? The arrestibule. Don't ask me. Don't ask me. Arrestibule. People would want to move on with their day, right? Yeah, so sure. this this would be a, a gigantic issue. As much as, as much as it makes sense yeah. as a possible um, deterrent and a possible tool against this, uh, logistically, I don't know if it would work overall. And then the and then the other popular. Uh, thought was to keep everything behind a counter. Well, then that eliminates no. your that's, shopping yeah, experience. Yeah. People so. like going to look at the different bottles and stuff. Exactly. I thought uh, scanned ID was you know perfect because it's yeah. cheap, it's easy to do. Mm. Your ID is on there, so they know exactly who you are. So if you're going to steal something, you know who stole something. It's I don't. Know, I thought it was the cheapest. And then the next fix. time you try to get in, you, they just won't let you in. Yeah, because they caught you stealing yeah. once. But you do need another person unless it's an automated machine to be standing there. Like the ones I've seen yeah, in use at nightclubs in Winnipeg fine. is that you have a, you, so it's another staff member just in the cost. It's not as cheap as just putting in a machine or something like right. that. There's well, no, but I think in terms, in terms of, of, of uh, you'd probably eliminate a bunch of people being right. able to even go into the store you're, because you're they right. may not even have the appropriate ID to get in to the liquor mart. Well, they can't buy booze then, can't they? If they can't have ID. Well, yeah, because if, they get, if they get carded at the desk, 
and they say, I don't have my ID, well, then, sorry, get out. Like, that's just the end of your transaction. Because if you're going to some of the pot shops that have opened up since October, I mean, they have a guy right in the front, Mm -hmm. and he's taking everybody's card, and he's checking everybody to make sure what they're Then they let in. So I think that's probably the easiest uh, easiest way. I wonder if that might be the way to go. Yeah, Uh, Treat it like a nightclub sort of situation. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Part of me wonders if they're just kind of waiting to see if this is just... A blip, like it was all of 20, 2018 was way more thefts than 2017. But then if with the whole meth crisis and people just all these different drugs going through the streets and problems, I, I wonder if there's just, well, is it going to just be one of those really bad years? And if we get a control all, over all these other crimes in the city, then maybe it'll come down again. But I, I don't know if they look at it that way or if they really are just seeing this huge trend that they need to tackle now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if anything, it, it'll create at least another job at every liquor mart or it'll give it a Maybe produce some overtime hours. I don't know. I'm sure they'll Brett be Brett for happy. mayor. You're going to create jobs or premier <laughs> and... Gonna, safety and create safety jobs. Safety and job creation. How do you argue with that? <laughs> and, and, we're, and we're inventing words, too. <laughs> Question of the day at cjob.com. The prime minister will be in Winnipeg today. What do you want to hear him talk about? S&C Lavalin, Carbon Tax, Winnipeg Transit Announcement, or CFL Free Agency. <laughs> Log on to cjob.com. Uh, again, it's brought to you by Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace, 204-832-6243. And indeed, S&C Lavalin is going to be a big topic of conversation today. Yeah, and we want to talk more about that right now with Global's National Online Journalist, Amanda Connolly, who joins us over the phone. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on with us. I'm curious where this might take a turn today. Yesterday, we had the ethics commissioner saying he they were going to launch an investigation. Trudeau admitting that he did have a conversation with the attorney general about uh, SNC-Lavalin last fall, but said there was no political interference. Where does this go next, do you think? Yeah, so I think today is certainly going to be very interesting. As you mentioned before, Justin Trudeau will be taking questions and, and making comments today, um, speaking this afternoon. Really what we're expecting to hear him comment on today are accusations that have been coming out over the last 24 hours, accusing the government of, of taking a, a sexist uh, or disparaging tone in all of this towards Jody Wilson-Raybould, who is, of course, the former attorney general. Uh, there have been reports over the last couple of days, or the last week or so here, that uh, have pointed to her 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 behavior when she was uh, when she was attorney general as saying that she was a thorn in the government side, saying she berated fellow cabinet ministers at the table and that her behavior really made her hard to work with. Uh, we're hearing now from BC Indigenous chiefs, as well as a former uh, parliamentary secretary to the prime minister, Selena Cesar Chavez, who is an MP as well, uh, who have been very critical of that tone coming out from the government, saying it is sexist, it's not fitting for a government that wants to be promoting women. And I expect that we're going to hear a lot of questions about that to Trudeau today. It feels as though they're setting this woman up to be the bad, the bad person. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's certainly a criticism that uh, has emerged on social media. There, there have been a lot of questions around exactly why this is being framed the way it is. Really, it, it's hard to say for sure right now because there are so few facts that we know with certainty. Again, these allegations are all coming out of a Globe and Mail report. Uh, they have not been independently verified. And so far, there's been very little, uh, very little insight from the government into the concrete details that have been alleged here and, and how exactly this was being carried out. We did hear Trudeau saying yesterday that he spoke with 
Jody Wilson-Raybould over the last couple of days and that she confirmed for him that they had a conversation in the fall that he, in which he told her, he says he told her that this was all going to be her decision, that it would be the final call would be hers and hers alone to make. So, but again, there, there are questions being raised about why we're not hearing that from, from Wilson-Raybould herself. And of course, the, the, the issue there is that she's saying that there is solicitor-client privilege that continues to exist here, and the government has yet to say whether it will waive that privilege. Well, and a lot of people are suggesting the very fact that Prime Minister Trudeau has now discussed that discussion or those series of discussions insinuates or suggests uh, that he is waiving that privilege by talking about parts of those discussion and prohibiting the former Attorney General from doing the same. So that, that certainly, again, has, has come up. Uh, that, that's been a, a big cause for concern among this is, is you know, exactly who can speak about it and what, when does that... Uh, when, when can that privilege be waived? We did hear Trudeau say yesterday that he is directing Attorney General, current Attorney General David Lametti, to look into the issue of solicitor-client privilege and what the implications might be in potentially waiving it and to give him recommendations on that. Lametti, who is, uh, he, he was named to the Attorney General post last month, uh, was very, very vague yesterday. He was asked about this, about whether or not he would look into waiving solicitor-client privilege. He was saying basically there, there are a lot of implications uh, if, if someone were to do that, uh, that needs very carefully considered and that there there has yet to be any decision made on that matter. Uh, but again, the, the direction that we're hearing from the PM for him to provide recommendations on that will certainly be very interesting to watch going forward. So again, just for our listeners, this conversation started last week with a Global Mail report alleging officials in the PMOs, uh, the Prime Minister's office, had tried to pressure a former Attorney General to intervene or cut a deal with SNC-Lavalin to keep it from going to a criminal trial or a possible conviction. So there's lots of allegations in there and, and lots to unwrap Amanda, I'm curious what the thought is in Ottawa. I mean, Prime Minister's here today to make a funding announcement for a transit garage in Winnipeg, and we know funding announcements come with campaigns, but where do you think this issue will be in a few months' time? Does this have the staying power to derail a campaign as we move forward towards that fall election? I think that really is the big issue that is being considered right now. Of course, with the Ethics Commissioner saying that they are opening up an investigation into this, those investigations can span months. So it's entirely possible that we will not get the results of that investigation until towards the end of the, uh, the end of the sitting, maybe even towards May or June, when the government is actually wrapping up and getting ready to hit the campaign trail over the summer uh, ahead of the election this fall. So depending, again, depending what comes out, depending what confirmation we can get and what further information comes out to potentially either confirm that these allegations are correct or to uh, suggest that maybe they're not entirely accurate. It, it, it's really going to depend on, on what we know. But of course, uh, we do have a committee hearing taking place in Ottawa tomorrow. They're going to be debating the uh, the House of Commons Justice Committee an emergency motion asking to call several senior members of the government before the committee to actually testify on this. We, we do not yet, yet know if that motion will succeed. The Liberals do hold a majority on that committee. The opposition, NDPs, uh, the opposition MPs from the NDP and the Conservatives are the ones that are bringing that motion forward. And so far, we're really seeing um, hedged wording from the Liberals who are on that committee. We did see one Liberal who is not on the committee yesterday call for that motion to be approved. But we are, we are seeing so far uh, no clear indication from the Liberals who actually sit on that and will be casting the deciding votes as to whether they'll approve it. Now, they could approve the motion, they could defeat it, they could also amend it. So it is entirely possible, within the realm of possibility as well, that we could see 
for example, not even the full list of witnesses who are being demanded come, perhaps an amended list of, of the, even the, the current attorney general, for example, would not be outside the realm of possibilities to come there. Um, Amanda, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but we are out of time. we got to let you go. But thank you so much for joining us. Amanda Connolly, national online journalist with Global News. Thank you so much for the, joining us. And again, apologies for the abrupt interruption. In a moment, we're going to hear reaction on a couple of sports organizations in this province making some big changes regarding the vocabulary they use. But before we do that, we start, Loren McNabb, with an update from Winnipeg Police. Yeah, on that assault at St. John's High School yesterday. And we wanted to update this again and remind listeners of what happened because sometimes assaults happen off school property, but you think it's with students or you think it happened on school grounds with weapons. So what police have confirmed what happened is that it was a stabbing. And in a letter that was sent from the principal to St. John's High School parents and students, it was confirmed that it went into a hold and secure yesterday because of an altercation between three students that occurred in front of St. John's High School. That's on Church Avenue. Two students were injured and 911 was called. We understand those students are in stable condition. The third student left before Winnipeg police arrived. An arrest has been made. It's not clear if that third student is that person or if there was something separate going on but an arrest has been made and that's the very latest we have from that St. John's High School assault. And the fact that they're using the terminology and the word student confirms something that we also didn't really know as to whether or not where the, where these individuals sure. came from were they in fact students at St. John's. Sometimes it, it sounds, happens outside right we were correct. saying like we on the sidewalk not involving the students so Good point. It seems to have uh, confirmed that all three individuals involved in this situation were, in fact, students at St. John's. And before we move on, I just want to bounce this text message off you, Greg. Uh, We were talking about the snow and the fact that we got more of it and that it was a messy drive for us. And we're hearing all sorts of traffic issues today. And at 204-780-6868, somebody asks, I'd like to know whose bright idea it was in a city where there can be snow on the roads for up to six months of the year to paint the broken lines that separate the lanes in white. A little snow and nobody knows where the lanes are. How about fluorescent orange might be more visible? Good point. You know, they use yellow in a lot of places in a lot of jurisdictions. Is there a distinction, though, between white lines and yellow lines? You can't cross the yellow, or would that be the confusing part? Because yellow becomes, I know when it's dotted, that's more of the thing than like a dotted line versus straight. I think it's a a great suggestion. I'd want to get more clarity on why there is or are yellow lines on highways. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you, you travel the Yellowhead Highway... I don't think they paint the lines yellow just because it's the yellow head. Only on two-lane <laughs> undivided highway. Yeah. Right? right. So uh, it'd be interesting to know. And I think the, the listener makes a really good point. It may be something that you can do in other jurisdictions, but white with the snow... I mean, it just doesn't work. I, I think it's a, a brilliant observation. Except for, I, I do think at this point in the year, those lines are almost done for anyway. We get to that point in the season that, like even with the bike lanes, no matter what color, which are green, no matter what color they're painted, they just have that fade and wear and tear. And I don't know if there's it's a bigger issue of just what chemicals they're using in the paint to make them stand out or last longer as well. So, yeah, that could be an interesting conversation. I just Googled white lines versus yellow, and I found an article saying the interesting reason behind why some road lines are white and others are yellow. 
and there is apparently historical significance there. I haven't had time to go through it. I've just pulled it up now, so I will have a peek at that. But in the meantime, the headline at cjob.com, which I will paraphrase, thanks to what we've learned over the last few years from our next guest, the M-word to be dropped from Football League of Manitoba name. The news comes on the heels of basketball Manitoba dropping it just last week. For reaction, we turn to Samantha Rayburn Trubick, president of Little People of Manitoba. Samantha, what do you think of all this? We're so excited. Oh, we're beyond excited. I can't even, I can't even put it into words, but we're so grateful and just so uh, beyond excited for all the support that we've been receiving. You've been talking about this for a long time with us here at CJOB, and I know with so many others within the community. What do you think was the tipping point for this to encourage now two leagues to remove that from their team names and, and potentially more down the road? You know what? I think it was just uh, people coming from a place that they didn't know how hurtful it was. And uh, once we had we had a meeting with Sport Manitoba and about 17 representatives from different leagues in Manitoba back in January, and um, the feedback pretty much unanimously was, wow, we, we just had no idea. And so I think the tipping point was uh, just, you know, providing the education and the reasons behind the change, or the need for the change, I should say. Samantha, are you surprised, though, that there's still some pushback from folks <laughs> who see this as being uh, uh, overly politically correct? Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, I, I'm shocked at a lot of the you know, not nice support that uh, I've received personally and the group has received. Um, You know, and again, I just take it back to maybe people just don't know. And, you know, I can, and some of the feedback that we've been receiving is, you know, well, we don't intend to use it that way. It's just a word. It's just okay. And, you know, I can appreciate that intention. um, And we certainly hope that, you know, whatever is done, you know, we're, we can change the rest of the uh, of the folks or the leagues that that still need to change a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I'm not surprised by the negative feedback, but I think there's just a little bit more work that needs to be done. For those who maybe still don't quite understand, can you explain why the M word is derogatory? Yeah, for sure. It's um, it comes from a word called so. So the the word is midget, and the word stems from a word called midge and and it's an insect that spreads disease and this word was coined back in you know the barn the the vaudeville days with barnum and daly and um, he used it pt barnum used it to put little people on display for entertainment people would pay to see little people strictly entertain people and and were put in the worst conditions were bought from you know, often bought from their from parents of advertised folks who who didn't want their children didn't want their children to look like someone like me, and and would would really just put them in these terrible conditions and use them. When, so when, the word is just a horrible word for us. When I hear that story, I'd like to think so many others would hear that and think, okay, I get it, let's drop it. But that doesn't always seem to be the case. Do you think the difference in so many of these teams? now adjusting or changing or dropping the the M word is because you also had a face-to-face visit and that makes a difference in just seeing in-person conversations about this and what the impact can be on someone. Yeah, it could be. Uh, that's a that's a great point. It definitely could be that as well. And and um, regardless of, of how they got there, I'm just so happy they finally got there. Mm. 
Sport Manitoba still looking at this in an overall sense. So we could be having this discussion uh, days from now, weeks or months from now that that the M word has been removed from pretty much every sport in Manitoba. So until until that day comes, we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed and and keep in, in touch with you on that, uh, along with uh, many other issues as it uh, pertains to little people in Manitoba. Thanks so I love much. It. Thank you so, so much. Samantha Rayburn-Trubick, President of Little People of Manitoba. The instantly recognizable theme of Star Wars will be one of the songs you hear Next weekend at the Centennial Concert Hall, where the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra presents Star Wars vs. Star Trek, hosted by the Couch Potatoes. Who? <laughs> Me and Jeff Broad. <laughs> I know. I still don't know what they were thinking. Nationally syndicated <laughs> radio show hosts. That's what they were thinking. You guys are a big deal, and it's about time you realize that. <laughs> Julian Pelicano is conductor for this show. He's our pal from the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, and he brought someone with him today. Andrew Goodland, assistant principal double bass with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. It's a pretty cool title, Andrew. I think so, too. I sometimes prefer to be called the vice president of double base operations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's cool. Can you have, do you have that on your business card? Uh, I should now. Yeah, you can make that up. Julian, can you make that happen? I think, well, now that you said it on the radio, I think it's, uh, it's official. So we'll have to... <laughs> We'll have to see what we can do. So we were joking earlier, Julian, that uh, Jeff and I, like we've been talking about this with you guys since last January or last February, and we met with you in June, and uh, like in our business, if the deadline is noon, we're working on it until 11.59, but that's not quite how things work in your world, is it? No, no, we're like looking at stuff two years out in the symphony world, so... um, yeah, I mean, the fact that, like, meeting over the summer, that was even, uh, you know, cutting it close for us. Really? Yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> so opposite, hey? Like, I want you guys to come work with us, just, yeah. just for a day, and, oh. and then I'll come work with you for a, a week. And well, you are working with us for a week, right? Yeah, well, there you yeah. go. That's a fair point. Neither would survive. You couldn't survive. They would just pull their hair out here as we'd run around last minute all the time. So, So, so tell us, what's the inspiration for this? Well, the inspiration for this and for all of our concerts is obviously the music. I mean, these are great movies. They're great films. And all of the film projects we do at the symphony are for one reason and one reason only, that the music is absolutely incredible, world-class, top-notch, best that you can get. And uh, Star Wars and Star Trek, it's incredible. I have to say... I'm not picking sides. I'm totally neutral as a conductor. I need to conduct all of the music and give it all its rightful due. I sense a butt coming, though. The butt is that (laughs) I've conducted a lot of the music from Star Wars before, but I've never done any of the music from Star Trek. Oh, cool. And in my time, it took a lot of uh, research and listening and going over scores to find, just figure out, what is it? Because Star Trek is crazy. It's so many movies, all the TV series, and guess what? They're all by different composers. Like, there wasn't just one—Star Wars is just one guy, John Williams. He wrote everything. 
Star Trek, uh, you need a roadmap just to figure out what's going on there. And uh, But the music is spectacular. So yeah. that's the perspective as a conductor. When you play, is there, is there a difference between the styles of music? Uh, definitely. I mean, John Williams is... I, I think arguably, not arguably, he's a genius, and his music is always just really hard. And when they make those movies, you know, they got a they got a big budget for the movies, a lot of time that they put into it. They, you know, London Symphony, one of the you know most historic symphonies in the world, did the move the original movies and all that. Uh, and the you know the it's different for the TV shows, right? For Star Trek and everything, it's just it's a totally different type of thing. John Williams is a real workout all the time. Mm. So how would you compare somebody like John Williams to a more classic composer from, you know, a couple hundred years ago? Uh, I mean, it's it's as playing John Williams is absolutely as difficult as playing Beethoven. It's as difficult as playing Mahler, all the all that stuff. And it's, I think, as intricately written. I'm sure Julian can. He studied more of it. I just studied the bass lines. Uh, he has to study all of it. So, yeah, sure. I mean. John, well, John Williams, the amazing thing about John Williams is, that, yes, he's a film composer, and a lot of people don't realize this, but probably, I mean, there are composers that compose concert music, but there are a multitude, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of composers, great composers who are just working in TV and, and uh, film. And these people are just as, uh, just as much incredible musicians and artists as anyone writing concert music. John Williams, the amazing thing that he did is that his music fits into a lineage of music going back 200 and 300 years. So you can go all the way back to the 18th century, the music that we play all the time at the symphony, like on our Masterwork series. And I look at a score by John Williams as a conductor, and I see the history of all of the orchestral music yeah, that's come before it in this in this music that's totally new. It's completely his own voice, his own style. It goes together with these movies perfectly. And the thing that I never forget is that the great opera composers like Puccini, Verdi, Wagner, um, they were doing exactly the same thing. They were writing music that went together with the opera, and it had to fit the scene exactly it, it's, perfectly. It's so evocative, right? When you when you hear like uh, bum dum 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 daddy, everyone just has an immediate visual image of what's going on when that happens, right? And the same thing with if you hear Ride of the Valkyries, dun dum da dun dum dum right? It's and that's Wagner. It's the same thing. And John Williams is just an absolute master of matching uh, music to a of for just maximum impact. Yes. So then how did this start? You guys have done done such a solid pitch for Star Wars. Mm. How can Star Trek hope to bounce back and attempt claimed victory here? All right. Well, I mean, Star Trek, the Star Trek series, they went ahead and they, so as I said before, they've engaged a whole bunch of different composers over the years to write for them. I mean, uh, so Jerry Goldsmith, one of the great film composers of all time, um, and uh, James Horner also wrote music for Star Trek. Don't forget um, Alexander Courage. Alexander Courage wrote the original TV theme. I mean... Uh, and the list goes on and on. The one thing that Star Trek has done, though, that I thought was really cool that uh, is a little bit different than Star Wars is that every composer was given the same sort of Star Trek themes and uh, was able to fit it into their own music in their own style. So, I mean, it's a little bit more a variety of different kind of music. And um, and with the Star Trek TV shows, you know, there's so many. There's what, five, six 
TV shows are. Mm-hmm. I don't and, know how many there are. Yeah. And there, so many. Uh, yeah. I think it's amazing how well matched the opening theme for each show is with the show itself, mm-hmm. like the content of the show and the kind of the vibe of the show and all that stuff. I, that, I think that's quite remarkable. Well, it's going to be a great show next weekend, February 22nd to the 24th. Star Wars versus Star Trek. Tickets at WSO.ca. It's at the Centennial Concert Hall. Julian Pelicano is the conductor. Andrew Goodland is the assistant principal of Double Bass or the vice president of Double Bass Operations with the WSO. And the Couch Potatoes, me and Jeff Braun, will be hosting this show. It's going to be super fun. Can't wait to bring this to you. Julian, Andrew, thanks for coming down to visit us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us here. This is a story that uh, struck uh, awfully close to home for me. It was sent to me by a really good friend of mine, and I want to thank Andrea Purcell for connecting us with our guests here. Ben Svensson played junior hockey for the Winnipeg Blues from 2010 to 2014. In July of 2018, Ben died at his own hand after suffering a major concussion in 2016 that forced him off the ice and had a impact, a major impact on his mental wellness. And we welcome to the studio Ben's grandmother, Donna Fabry, and Byron Spriggs, who was a former teammate of Ben's. And we'll talk about the event and and what you're doing to raise awareness here. But Donna, if you'll snuggle up a little closer to the microphone here, we want to be able to to hear from you. First of all, our condolences, our heartfelt condolences to the loss of your grandson. This is uh, an incredible way to pay tribute to him, but tell us a little little bit about, about, about your grandson, Ben. Well, Ben was a very kind, loving, positive kind of guy. Before he had the concussion, he was an inquisitive person. He loved to travel. He loved to learn new things. He liked to hang out with the guys, especially Byron and Johnny and Cameron, another good friend. And he loved to fish. He was a very good athlete. So anything he did, he had to win. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he loved Bronx Park, and he would try to convince the Winnipeg Blues they needed to skate at Bronx Park outdoors to make them a better player. And, you know, when it happens, your life just falls apart when you realize that he's gone. And a uh, million pieces you need to pick up and start over without him. Can I can I ask you this, Donna, in retrospect? Did, did you realize what Ben was going through when he was going through it? Absolutely, yes. His personality had changed, has changed a lot. And I think people need to watch for signs like depression, anxiety, um, sadness, loneliness, crying easily, anger. There's all kinds of symptoms. How much were those symptoms connected to what happened? And how much was it, do you think, part of just life changed for him? And so as a result, it became, you, you have to reinvent yourself almost. Is that fair, Byron? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Sorry. Um, Yeah, I, I think that, you know, when Ben received that concussion, it was a major blow, you know, for him to take a step away from the game that he loves so much. Like like Donna mentioned, it, he was a, he was a really good athlete and uh yeah for him to have to take a step back for almost over a year um you know he wasn't himself not just in terms of not playing hockey which was a massive part of his life but it was also you know he he had to distance himself kind of from his friends in a way that he he felt like he had to kind of stay away from the social scene for a bit because he would get headaches his neck would hurt um 
And then obviously the thoughts on top of that, the depression. And, and to be honest, I, I didn't even know the magnitude of everything when it was happening. Even as a, one of his best friends, I didn't know how intense they were really getting. He would kind of shelter it around us, you know, obviously around his family. It was a little bit, he kind of showed the true colors a little bit more. But even around us, he was still trying to be the same old Sven we, we knew and hung out with when he played junior hockey. Um, but then, like you said, as, as the road and the journey kind of took more of a toll on him, taking time away from the game, um, you know, from all of his friends, his social group that's kind of when I think at least we started to see things that had kind of gone to a point that was a little past the tipping point I mm. guess so then when you you say that he was he tried to sort of put on a, a happy face around you guys um did, was there ever any hint at all that because sometimes like you, you you can you think your friends are might be going through something sure. but you don't want to push too hard sure. you say are you okay and like yeah yeah I'm fine totally and that's probably the biggest thing I regret is not you know reaching out more and and kind of maybe bringing up the more sensitive issues and especially you know in doing this event and being put in connection with Manitoba mood disorders Canadian mental health this the biggest thing that they're stressing is just being ears and 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 listening to the people that have issues and even for me I was too scared to ask because I didn't want to push them anyway mm-hmm. but I I guarantee you looking back if you know one thing that might have helped would have been hey Ben like I, I know it's sensitive but you know are you going through some stuff like let me listen let me let me hear you out let me let me you know, ask ask the tough questions sometimes, right? And let them talk to you. And if they don't want to, then don't push it, but make it an option, right? And I think looking back, that would have been one thing, especially with all these organizations in my ear now about this this event. Um, they've taught me quite a bit about it. And that's kind of why a huge thing we're doing this event is for these organizations to show the resources that sure. they have um, that I wasn't aware about, right? And and mm-hmm. so, yeah. So is this the, the, the gift that we're getting from Ben? is this awareness and this ability for Byron to speak the way he is so eloquently about what our friends that might be dealing with this, whether they're athletes or depression is concussion induced or brain injury induced or otherwise just to, to just deal with them in a kinder, gentler way and to ask some questions that we might not otherwise have known to ask. Well, we hope that this event will spark some discussion. People will step up and start listening a little more, not just in January where bell, starts to say, says to us, let's talk. I think we need to let's talk all the time and be aware of each other's, be kind to each other. And Ben, that was his big thing. He really liked people to get along. He loved gatherings. He, he loved to be with his buddies. He loved family gatherings. And the event we're hoping will, the awareness of mental health is so important to each and every one of us. And, um, I think that if we can get people talking, then we've done our job. And I think Ben is living on, his legacy will live on when we do something like this. I think the more you talk about him and what his personality was too, that's important because people might stereotype where they think mental health issues are going to happen, right? And they don't they don't pick the kid who is a strong athlete and fun to hang out with and all these these attributes that you would be so loving him for and then think that he's also going through the struggle, right? Because you don't always connect those two things together. Oh, no, sure. absolutely. And you want parents to be aware that concussions are very serious. It's not a small thing. Don't push them back onto the ice too quickly, even if they say they're ready. We need to say, you know what? Parents or grandparents, everybody involved with that child, pay attention. Let's get them some help. Let's let them relax and and, uh, get on to 
you know, the life that they were used to living. Byron, I've got a question for you with regard to team sport. We've heard it for years, the idea of uh, shake it off, suck it up, get back out on the ice, and, and that whole attitude that, that we've had for, for, for eternity, really, as it pertains to any sort of injury, never mind a brain injury. And a team is a band of brothers and sisters or brothers and sisters or combination thereof. But in that family, sometimes there are individuals that don't understand what's going on. And sometimes the, the pressure comes from within that family to get back out on the ice. Is, 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 is there a message there in terms of teammates and understanding what our brothers and sisters are going through off the ice, off the field when they have an injury like this. For sure. And that's kind of one big thing we're doing is is helping bring those, the issues we're talking about here and bring them to the hockey community. Like you mentioned, um, there there's not a big... You know, you, you don't you don't expect it from the hockey community. Sometimes you see the the big personas of the players, like you know Blake Wheeler, such a strong guy, right? Like the Winnipeg Jets, and it's the same thing with a lot of guys that I played junior hockey with and now collegiate hockey with the Bisons. Um, you know, they're, they're, you don't expect that kind of stuff out of them. The the, the kind of you know the mental health and that kind of the, the issues that follow that, but it's prevalent there as it is anywhere else. And um, and and yeah, you, you come back to that hockey, you know, the, the band of brothers and sisters and the family mindset. And maybe in the heat of the moment, you know, you th- you're thinking in your head, yeah, get back. We need you out there. We need you out there. It's, you know, I got to do this for you. I got to do this for the person sitting beside me and the other person wearing the same jersey as me. But, you know, after, especially after Ben's and, and after suffering concussion myself, I realized how serious these are and how these are not things to be messed around with. Even if it means, hey, if, if we ever lose in a few pl- players, we're short few players for a game, um, you know, we lose a hockey game, so be it, because in the long run, you know, that family member means something to you. That brother means something to you. That sister means something to you 10, 5, you know, 15 years down the road, not just for the next five minutes in the next period. You know, that game of hockey is really irrelevant in the long scheme of things or whatever sport you might play. Um, and like I said, tough way to learn those kind of lessons. But now I can definitely tell you I've been more vocal with mm-hmm. my teammates. If I'm seeing symptoms of a concussion, I'm going, you're not going back on the ice. I'm sorry. Well, right? there's two things to learn. The physical part, yeah. like to admit that you're it, in pain, exactly. but also to admit that you might be mentally in pain, right? There's, like, there's so many things to just say it's okay to say... I'm hurting, wherever that hurt might be. When I suffered my concussion, I had to, like, lock myself in a dark room for a week because I couldn't even look at my, you know, (laughs) where we are nowadays with our iPhones and stuff. (laughs) I couldn't even look at my phone for more than five minutes without getting a headache and starting to feel nauseous. And it's like, you you basically have to cut yourself off from the world. And I Mm -hmm. I put myself in Ben's shoes, him having to do that for about a year. Like, mine was much less severe than Ben's. And for him having to do that for a year. Two years. Two years, exactly, right? Two years. So. Can you even imagine? I can't. I can't imagine the pain he went through for that entire long period of time, um, and I and I sympathize with it and empathize with it so much now that that's why you know th- this event is is something that we're really trying to spark that conversation. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.